And I'm going to take a drink of water, so y'all hang on one minute, okay? <laughs> All right, this morning we're going to jump right in and we're going to continue our series entitled Always Rejoicing, preaching verse by verse through the book of Philippians. The title of the message this morning will be The Advancement of the Gospel. The Advancement of the Gospel. John Bunyan is a famous Christian author who was born in 1628. He came from a large, poor family in England. He did not have a conventional means of education where he got to go through as much schooling as some other people got to, but what he did develop as a young child was a love of reading. He would dive in and just consume whatever he could get his hands on, and he would read sermons from the Puritan preachers. He read Fox's book of martyrs, and he also had a love for adventure stories, but most of all, he steeped himself in the Bible. After years of suffering some depression and temptation that he sometimes would succumb to and say, there's no way that I can be saved. My burden is too heavy. My sins are too bad. He was reading through a commentary on the book of Galatians and he came to the realization fully for the first time that only faith would save him, not his works. And he put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. At one point in his life, after coming through some of those struggles and the unevenness that he walked in, he felt as if his burden had truly been lifted, and he began to attend the Bedford Separatist Church. This church practiced adult baptism by immersion after salvation and gave open communion to all who professed faith in Christ and holiness of life. John Bunyan became a talented, what we would call, lay preacher, in other words, he was not formally ordained and sanctioned by the Church of England that was the national church of the day, but he began to use his gifts to preach, and the Lord used him. The Church of England refused to sanction him and give him a platform to preach or allow him to preach in their churches, so he began to preach out in the fields, in the open air. And it was said at one point that people would show up at dawn in preparation to hear him preach, at noon. Well, on November 12th, 1660, John Bunyan was arrested and he was charged with the charge of holding services not sanctioned by the Church of England. They said, you must refuse to do this ever again. You must promise that you will never preach unless the Church of England gives you permission to preach. And John Bunyan said, I do not preach for them or by their authority, but I preach for the Lord and on the authority of his word. And I refuse to promise that I will not preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for refusing to promise to stop, he was arrested and sent to prison where he stayed for 12 years simply for the crime of preaching outside of the Church of England. If you know the story, then you know that it was during these 12 years that he sat in that jail cell that he wrote the book called Pilgrim's Progress, filled with Christian allegories that represented his years of doubt and struggle and the massive burden on his back that he needed the Lord to take away. Pilgrim's Progress has been translated into 200 languages and has never been out of print. 
And before the 1950s, when it became easy to mass produce things in printing, it was second in print only to the Bible for a period of about, what is that, 300 years. And God has used Pilgrim's Progress to speak to many people and give them hope about continuing on the journey of their Christian life. Well, John Bunyan was given that book, I believe, by the Lord in prison, not as inspired scripture, but as a gift to the church. And he even testified that he sat down to write and he almost didn't know what was happening or remembering what he did, but he believed that the Lord gave him the story of Pilgrim's Progress to be a blessing to the church. And it was given to him while he was in prison. And we know that the book of Philippians was written by Paul while he was sitting in prison for preaching the gospel. And this week on Monday evening, I was sitting at the kitchen table trying to do a little bit of prep work to rough outline the text for this morning. And Sarissa came to the kitchen table, my three-year-old daughter, and sat next to me. And she said, what are you reading? And you know, I'm kind of busy trying to focus, right? I need to get this done. And I said, Philippians chapter one. And she said, well, what does Philippians chapter one say? And so God was telling me, you know, no, I need to be focused. Don't tell my daughter what the Bible says. I need to prep for my sermon, right? So I put my pen down and I said, well, Paul's talking about how even though he's in jail, he's not mad about that because God's going to use him going to jail to see other people hear about Jesus. So he shouldn't be sad he's in jail, right? Because God let him go to jail. And she said, yeah. And even if we go to jail, Jesus will be with us. And it was true. It was true. But I believe the endeavor for all of us in attending church and hearing the preaching and reading the Word of God is not to hear what I want to say this morning, but what does Philippians chapter 1 say? How does it apply to our lives? Let's endeavor to dig into it this morning. The Apostle Paul was probably... I would say undoubtedly the most successful missionary in the history of the New Testament church. He was used to his freedom. He was used to going wherever he wanted to, whenever he wanted, praying for God to lead him. And he would charge into Asia Minor and preach the gospel. And people got saved and churches got started. The same in Europe where Philippi was located. He went into Macedonia and preached the gospel. But as Paul had a burden to see Rome reached with the gospel also, he finds himself not in Rome as a missionary with his freedom, but sitting in a jail cell, sitting under house arrest with the Roman guards, having him literally buckled into chains. Yet we also see that Paul was not discouraged because he had faith in what God was doing. And he expresses faith in this passage of scripture that God had allowed him to go through this trial and that because of the trial he was going through, more people were going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he was going to sit there and rejoice that he was under arrest instead of out in the streets preaching the gospel as he would have liked to. The life of Paul, the life of John Bunyan in our text this morning teaches us the simple, basic, yet encouraging truth that God uses our trials. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, who are the called according to His purpose. Our hope is that our sorrow, our suffering, and our struggles in life are not meaningless. 
They're not the result of evolved animals and random pieces of stardust in the galaxy bumping into one another. And nothing matters whether we live or whether we die. And whatever we do, it doesn't really matter because we're just evolved like the animals are. No, the hope of the Christian life is that God is sovereign. And if something has entered our life, it means God has allowed it to enter. And even if it's something bad, even if it's not something that originated from God, God can take terrible situations and trials and use them for our good, for His glory, and for the advancement of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.12 but I would, you should understand, brethren, I want you to know something. I want you to understand that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Paul's telling this church that this is not random. This is not an accident. God's got this. God's in control. God knows where I'm at. And the things that have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance that word furtherance meaning advancement or profit of the gospel. Paul is saying, stop and realize with me that this situation, me being in jail, has actually served to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for gospel in the New Testament simply means good message. Hence, we say the gospel means Good news. If we want to tell someone, I want to share with you the gospel. We're saying, I have really good news for you. If you will hear it, if you will receive it. What is the gospel? The gospel is that we are sinners. And because of our sins, we have fallen into condemnation. If we die in our sins, with our sins unforgiven, we will face an eternity of judgment and condemnation. But Jesus died on the cross for our sins, not for his own, but for ours. He was our substitute. He volunteered to take the wrath of God for the sins of all mankind so that our sins are paid for. Yet we must accept this free gift. We must ask him for salvation. We must choose to believe in him. What is the gospel? The gospel is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. And according to the scriptures, He was buried and raised again the third day. The gospel is the Philippian jailer looking at Paul and Silas in his hopelessness and saying, What must I do to be saved? And Paul answering, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The gospel is the book of Romans. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The gospel is again in the book of Romans. If thou shalt believe in thine heart the Lord Jesus and confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. This is the gospel. This was Paul's heartbeat. This is what he lived his life for. This is why he chose to give up marriage and having a family as he believed that was God's calling for his life was to be engaged full time in the service of spreading the gospel. He keeps using the word gospel over and over again in chapter 1 and shows through this text that he values the gospel and other people hearing that Christ has died for your sins so that you can have eternal life and live with God forever. This church in Philippi was there because of the gospel. It was there because Paul went there and told it to them. 
Let me read you some selected scriptures from the book of Romans that show us how much that Paul cared about the gospel. And that was his breath, his heartbeat, and his desire. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Then notice Romans 9.3, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is a prayer and a statement that I don't know if I would be able to pray. But Paul said, I look at the nation of Israel and I see how they have the Old Testament. They have the law, but I know that the law cannot save them. And I know that I used to be eaten up in that legalism, as Paul will talk about later on in Philippians. He did the law perfectly. He was blameless, yet it led him to the hopeless, empty place that anyone will end up in who's trying to earn their way to God. And he ended up persecuting other Christians, killing them, thinking that he was doing God a service. And Paul said, my heart is so heavy, I could wish that I myself would be accursed and sent to hell in order that they might be saved and believe and receive the gospel. And Paul cared so much about the gospel that he looked at his current trial, all of it, every single bit of it, and saw it as a way to get the gospel to new people. If he couldn't walk into the streets of Rome and do open-air preaching like John Bunyan did and like, like he did in other places, then he said, I'll sit here under house arrest and I'll give the gospel to the people who come to visit me. And the guards who are watching me will overhear the gospel. And I'm already seeing an effect that's being set off where other people are seeing me stand true and tall for the faith and are standing up to preach the gospel who otherwise wouldn't be. And God's using my trials to see more people get the gospel and be saved. Let me ask you this morning, if more souls would be eternally saved because of a trial that God would give you to bear, what would you be willing to endure? What would you look at the Lord and say, no, I don't want that sorrow in my life. If God would use that sorrow to see other people be saved and go to heaven instead of to hell. What if it was your child? your father, your mother. And God said, if you will bear this burden, I will use it to see them come to the Lord and be saved. I think we would be willing to bear whatever it took. But also our friends, our acquaintances, our co-workers, strangers on the street, every single one of them are made in the image and likeness of God. And they're somebody's child, father, or mother. And if God would choose to bring sorrow and trials into our life that would help people hear the gospel that otherwise would not, 
then like Paul, we should surrender to that and joyfully bear whatever the Lord would give us to bear. And as I've said, Jerry, we've been praying for you. And as the funeral was concluded yesterday, the auditorium full of people who came out to remember Charlotte, as it was over and people were leaving, I just stood in the back corner over there. I didn't want to leave in case some, somebody needed me, but I didn't want to stand out where, where I was the center of attention. But I stood there and it was like God was telling me, don't look at your phone, don't be distracted, but look and give honor and also remember. The Bible says it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting because the living will see and will consider it. And I felt like God was telling me, remember that if life continues its natural course, someday your parents will be having a funeral. Someday all of us, unless it's the rapture that takes us, there'll be a funeral for us too. And what are people going to remember? What will our life have counted for? And last night, after we got home and rested a little bit, Melissa and I were sitting out on the back porch doing some reading. And Melissa got a notification on her phone from her hospital that said the hospital's on lockdown. Don't come in or don't leave the hospital if you're, you're, on, if you're in there right now. And if you have to come to work for your shift, then enter through this entrance where security is. And she said, something's probably going on. We started to look and people were posting videos how at the Allen Outlet Mall, three minutes from where I grew up, where I've been going ever since I was 18 years old, somebody took a weapon and opened fire and took the lives of eight innocent people. And they said there was a police officer that was already on scene who was there because of an unrelated phone call. And he went directly to where the shooting was and killed that person who was murdering everyone. And if he hadn't already been there, it could have been a whole lot worse if they had to wait for the police to show up. Then they said there's victims in the hospital ranging from age five to age 61. And I just looked at my family and I prayed and I said, God, would you please help me to remember that life is short? God calls every single one of us because it fits with the text this morning to try and give our lives to Him in a way that other people would hear the gospel and would hear the message of hope. What a disappointing, hopeless world this is if not for the message of Christ. And as we talked about yesterday at the funeral, the scriptures where Paul wrote to them in Thessalonians and to Corinth and said, don't believe the people who say there is no resurrection of the dead. Don't worry about your loved ones who have died in Christ. And he reminded them that though the body is put into the ground and it turns to dust, remember that there's coming a morning when the trumpet's going to sound and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And this corruptible body is going to put on incorruption. And this mortal body is going to put on immortality. And the only hope to look at this mess that we're in, where we look at our own righteousness and say, I don't need God, I think I'm good enough. But the fruits of our labors and our beliefs are so easily seen to be empty and fallen short and gone. 
and the only hope to make it out of this life and stand one day in glory and redemption with a body that never gets sick or dies or never even wants to sin. Paul says in Philippians, we shall be made like unto the body of Jesus Christ. The only hope for that is the message of the gospel. And that's what the world needs to hear. Number one, God has a purpose in allowing our trials. Paul's saying this isn't an accident. It's not random. Have faith. Don't give up and quit and say, well, God abandoned Paul and left him in jail. No, look beyond the circumstances and believe by faith that God is going to use me being in jail to see the gospel go forward and people get saved. Paul had a great ministry. Would you like the ministry of the Apostle Paul? We could say to anyone who lives for the Lord, yes, we'd like those results. But there was a whole lot of trials he went through too in order to get there. And he surrendered himself to them and he bared them joyfully. Several verses quickly. Let me just read them through really quick where Paul describes the trials he went through on his missionary journeys. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 30. Let me read you these verses. I'm sorry. I want to make sure that I'm not skipping over. Okay, I'm going straight to these. Forgive me. I'm going to try to, to get my train of thought here. 2 Corinthians 11. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes or beatings above measure. In prisons more frequent. In deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Five different times the Jews took him and beat him with thirty-nine lashes publicly. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, lost in the ocean, hoping to be saved from shipwreck. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, by the heathen, in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea, among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is offended? And I burn not. Paul's saying, I'm human. I'm not a superhero. I don't like it. Though he could sing with joy on the floor of the jail cell in Philippi, he wouldn't have chosen to have the stripes and the scars burning on his back where the flesh was ripped away by the whip. But he had to give that to the Lord. And ask God to bring something good about it. And he says, if I must needs glory, I will glory in the things which concern my infirmities. I will rejoice in my trials, Paul says. Later he writes about the thorn that was in his flesh, his physical ailment, and how he kept asking God to heal him and take it away. And God said, no. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, not, you're healed. But he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul said, if I have to choose between a lack of infirmities, sickness, and trials, and the power of Christ, I will take the power of Christ along with the trials. So God, give me what you want me to bear and help me to bear it joyfully. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, necessities, 
persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. You see, it is important to remember that the trials that we're bearing in the persecution is actually for Christ's sake. Sometimes we could be a jerk or an idiot and people don't like it. And we say, well, I'm suffering for Christ. Well, maybe you're suffering for the way you're choosing to represent Christ. But Paul could say, when it's for the sake of Jesus Christ, I will rejoice for when I am weak, then am I strong. Remember in Job's suffering that God was sovereign in all of it and that though Job could not see, God was in heaven with a hedge of protection and the devil could not attack until God allowed it. Why did God allow it? Because he hated Job? Because he wanted to see him suffer? No, because he had an eternal purpose to work about in his life and so that he could bless the church for every generation to look at that story of Job and to say, perhaps my trials are not because I'm wicked, but perhaps my trials are because God has a purpose he wants to see accomplished through my sorrow. So Paul said in Philippians 1.12, Remember, what's happened to me has happened for the advancement of the gospel. Then he says in verse 13, So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Remember, his bonds are his shackles, his chains. And the word manifest here simply means to make known. And he says, in all the palace. That word there in the New Testament for palace sometimes appears as governor's court or judgment hall. And in the margin, the translators place the phrase Caesar's court. I think what he's talking about is that in the palace, in the judgment hall in Rome, where all of the Roman guards were and the magistrates were and the family members and people who were related to Nero, to Caesar, they saw what was happening and the story of Paul suffering for the gospel was beginning to spread through Rome. And people were getting saved and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, not the way Paul would have envisioned it, where he goes into the synagogues and into the street and preaches the gospel, but because people heard about what was happening to him in jail, word was beginning to spread. And people got saved there too. And at the end of the book of Philippians, Paul says, all they of Caesar's household salute you. Some people think that maybe it was people who were related to Caesar himself that was getting saved. Other people think that he's talking about Christians in Rome and he's using a covert way to protect their safety by simply saying they who are of Caesar's household, they who belong to Rome, who are Christians, they told Paul, salute the church at Philippi. Tell them thank you for supporting you in your missions work so that we could hear the gospel and get saved. Number one, God has a purpose in allowing our trials. Number two, our trials can benefit other Christians. Stick with me for just a moment. Let's follow the next verse. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So here's what he says. He says, many of the brethren, other Christians, have seen what have happened to me and are watching me stand tall in this trial, and they're getting more confident by the fact that I'm in jail, yet continuing to serve the Lord. And because of that confidence, they're losing their fear, and they're gaining boldness, and they're preaching the gospel. This event of Paul being persecuted and unjustly imprisoned, yet continuing to stand tall for the Lord, rallied the troops. It's what you could call the martyr effect. 
where sometimes the oppressors will look and they want to keep the people they're oppressing and occupying under. So they have to crack the whip a little bit. But then when someone in the resistance begins to stand up and push back, they say, be careful. Just like they said about Jesus. If we kill him, the multitude might turn against us. Herod wanted to kill Peter, but he had a fear of the people who would stand up and say, now you've gone too far. Now you'll create a backlash. Now you'll create more of a resistance movement if you give that movement a martyr. It's said that Newt Rockney, the coach of Notre Dame, had a player on the team who they called the Gipper. And he had an accident and was about to die. And Newt Rockney went to the scene and he talked to the football player before he died. And Newt Rockney one day at halftime when his football team was losing, went into the locker room and he said, I've never told you this story, but right before he died, the Gipper looked at me and said, Coach, someday when the team is up against it, you tell them go out there and win one for the Gipper. He said, so let's go out there and win one for the Gipper. And that's a famous line if you may have heard that or looked it up before. And some people have said they think the, the coach made it up. But the story of him telling it to the team was true. And they came back and won the football game because they had a cause to rally around of someone on their team that they wanted to do something for. Who in here will out themselves as a Star Wars fan? Anybody? I knew Fabian would. That's why I looked at him. Who was it said, cut me down and you'll turn me into a force more powerful than you can imagine? Didn't somebody say that? Okay, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now that I distracted you with that, I may have regained your attention. We'll bring it back to a spiritual point. That effect is real though. That effect of they killed Jesus, but they didn't defeat Jesus. He rallied all of Christendom for the rest of time to serve the cause that he was there to serve, which was to see people get saved. In Iran, there was a pastor. His name was Pastor Humaynao, if I'm pronouncing that right. And he was holding a prayer meeting with his family and a couple other Christians. And when they have prayer meeting and when they have service, they have to do it in secret. But someone outed them. And the Iranian police stormed the prayer meeting. They kicked down the doors. They placed everyone there under arrest. They blindfolded them and threw them all in jail. And this pastor, though they beat him, though they commanded him multiple times, refused to stop preaching the gospel, even in prison. And they put him in solitary confinement. And then they put him in where some of the worst of the worst murderers were. And he kept preaching the gospel, kept preaching the gospel. And he was in prison for three and a half years before they let him out. When we hear stories like that, it stirs us up. It says, God, would you please forgive me for complaining about serving you? Would you help me to have a zeal and to stand up and be counted and have courage like that brother had serving you in that country? And I believe this is what he's saying is happening. Other brothers were getting more confident and being bold to speak the word without fear. And Paul was able to say, it's not about me. And if I have to suffer in order to see people rally around me and more people hear about Jesus, then sign me up. I'm willing to go through this. There's some other reasons that they may have been emboldened. Maybe when this effect started to happen, 
and his bonds and him being in jail caused more salvations. It took people who were too timid to get involved to see what was happening and they got excited and said, now I'm going to start preaching just like Paul did. And I want to see people get saved. Some people even started the preaching the gospel with bad motives. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. My point is, Paul's trials allowed him to benefit other Christians around him. And he rejoiced in that. So then use your trials, even use your failures, failures in life to help others. I believe as Christians, we should not be afraid to tell our testimony. Share your story. Share God's grace. Share how God helped lead you through and overcome a sin that you were taken in so that some other Christian may hear about that who's struggling and be encouraged to go forward. Paul could look and say, I've made it through all these trials and God's been faithful. So can you keep serving the Lord. And it encouraged people. I've worked at the post office since 2007 when I was 17 years old. And it's not really like that for much anybody now. But there were several days where I worked there where we worked 60, 70 hour work weeks in the, in the sun and 105 degrees. And when I started, I did not know what I was doing. And I had a hard time for about six months being able to deliver one route by myself. And sometimes, depending on how many people they got, you know, they'll take the new people who don't know how to do much and they'll say, no, we got it today. No, we got it covered. And then sometimes they'll say, all right, you take the easy route and we'll check on you. And then sometimes they might have eight or ten routes with nobody assigned to it. And everybody's going to be working all night basically to get it done. And they say, okay, you can work today. You go do that one and you're on your own. So sometimes if it was going to take you till nine o'clock at night to get done, you were going to be working till nine o'clock at night. But other times you'd be out there and it's about to start getting dark. And I remember being out in the heat and it was getting dark and I had a whole lot of trays of that mail to try and deliver. And I didn't know if I was going to be on my own and I was thinking, I'm going to be out here all night. And then I looked in my rear view mirror and I saw another one of those blue and white trucks zooming up and he got out and he jumped around and he was one of those guys that was fast at everything. And he said, they sent me to help you. Whew, and it feels a whole lot better when you're not alone. And I'll tell you this morning, church, I believe that we need each other. There's going to be times in life when we need help. And there's going to be times when we can give help to somebody else that needs it. And I'll stand for Christ alone if that's what I'm called to do. I'll say, God, please give me the grace to stand alone for truth. But I sure would feel a lot better if you'd stand with me and I stand with you. And we can be united as other Christians and bear one another's burdens. And when John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he put characters in there that were bad friends that led him aside and that quit and turned back on the journey. And Christian had to leave them behind. But he also wrote out characters like Hopeful and Faithful, who were good friends, who helped him and who encouraged him to keep on going. And this morning, I don't know if you feel needed here but I promise you, if this is where God has put it in your heart that you're supposed to be, I need you. And the other people of the body of Christ need you too. And Paul said, I love the gospel and I love my Christian brethren enough that if my suffering and my persecution will allow them to be emboldened to serve the Lord better, then so be it. I'm willing for that to happen. So what do we say so far? Number one, God has a purpose in allowing our trials. Number two, God can allow our trials to benefit other Christians. And number three, 
God can bring about good results by our critics, because of our critics. So stick with me a little bit. We've got just a few more verses that we're going to cover here in this text, and we'll explain what we mean. If we try to do anything for the Lord, at some point we're going to have critics. We're going to have some people look at us and question our motives or our decisions and accuse us and criticize us. Mary was criticized for anointing the feet of Jesus before his burial. And for Judas said that money could have been taken and given to the poor. But Jesus spoke up on her behalf without her having to defend herself and said she did it for my burial. She did it because she loves me. Leave her alone. And there's such a great lesson and maybe a whole message in that, that if we're trying to serve the Lord with a heart of love and other people are criticizing us, maybe it's okay to not answer the critics every time and to just say, Lord, if you tell me to do this, I'm going to do it. And I'll wait till you say, leave him alone. He's doing what I called him to do. And there will be critics, certainly critics of churches and of the Christians who go there. As I said before, People will say, you're a legalist if you try to do anything that's a stand on the Word of God. People will say, you're a worldly compromiser if you try to do anything that's different from the way we've always done it because we believe that God would have us to try and and be more creative and more effective. And outside critics are expected. It's a bad time to have thin skin as a Christian in 2023 because the simplest of basic Bible doctrines, if you publicly identify with them, you better be ready for them to try and cancel you. You're a bigot. You're hateful. You're anti-science. You're whatever else they want to say. It's going to come at you fast and furious if you want to stand for the Lord. And the media will run news stories as they have. We found out that this church on the corner had a member who said that they were going to be a practicing homosexual and that there was nothing wrong with that. And the church made two, three attempts to try and get them to repent, and they didn't. So they said, we love you, but we're going to put you under church discipline and separate you from membership until you repent. Can you believe that church did that? So it's, it's expected from the outside. Paul says a lot of times expect things from people who don't know God because they don't know God. You didn't know Him in the past either. So expect that. Be patient. Be loving. But what happened to Paul can also happen to us too, where the criticism can come from other Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes that stings a little bit more. Sometimes it hurts a little bit more when it's another professing believer who criticizes you. There was a pastor of a Baptist church in California and way back before the technology got so easy where you could do it fairly simply, he had a giant auditorium. Thousands of people would come in there. Great preacher, preach the gospel faithfully. And he said, we're going to put some screens up in the auditorium so that we can put the points of the message, the Bible verses and the songs up there. And it will help people see and remember the message. And another Baptist pastor in California wrote up a paper about why having screens in church was a sin and mailed it out to other churches across the West Coast. And then if I got the details right, that same preacher who criticized him about 10 years later said, well, we're going to put screens up in our church because it's hard for people in, you know, like the mezzanine area to see. But I'm not going to put, I'm not going to preach from that. I can't put, I'm not going to put the Bible on it. I'm just going to put a video of me on it while I preach. And that's what makes it okay. And I've heard, and you may have heard, 
People will take precious time that was supposed to be taken to preach the Word of God in the text. And they'll say other preachers preach off of an iPad. And you shouldn't do that because iPad is not pure like the Bible is. So don't preach from an iPad. Wear a tie when you preach or you're a sinner. And look, if you think God wants you to not preach from an iPad or to wear a tie, by all means, do what works in your context. But I think it's actually shameful to take time that was supposed to be dedicated to preaching, thus saith the Lord, and preaching things that the Lord did not say. Especially with this, I'm going to criticize other Christians who are different so that I can drive a wedge and try to tell everybody else, they're all wrong, but I'm right. I think it's shameful behavior. Okay, uh, where were we? Verse 14, Philippians 1. Paul says, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. So some saw Paul was suffering, and they were rallied by that and stirred, and they preached the gospel of goodwill. But Paul said some people were preaching Christ out of envy, which is jealousy, and strife, which means contention. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. So what was going on here? Some people were preaching the gospel more than they were before, but they were preaching it with a bad motive. They had been envious of Paul and jealous over the ministry that God had given him. And they were looking for an opportunity for personal advancement by the trials of Paul. Other brothers in Christ. He said they were preaching Christ out of jealousy, strife, and contention. Perhaps some saw this as an opportunity to become a voice, to gain their own opportunity, and ride the coattails of the movement that Paul seemed to have started. Somebody famous gets fired or goes to jail. There's what? There's a vacuum there. Who's going to step in and be the voice? And perhaps some people were looking to politicize and organize and take advantage of the divisions of Christians and say, well, now that Paul's off the table, I want to maybe take Paul's place. Or maybe we've always criticized Paul and not liked him, and now that he's in jail, let's start preaching more, and maybe more people will listen to us that Paul was always wrong and that he's being punished by God. It's not exactly spelled out what was happening, but that's what he said was going on. They were preaching Christ, not sincerely, but out of envy and out of strife. Albert Barnes said about these people who were preaching Christ out of envy and strife, they were disposed to form parties and to secure followers and rejoiced in an opportunity to increase their own popularity and were not unwilling thus to diminish the popularity and lessen the influence of so great a man as Paul. Had he been set at liberty, they would have had no prospect of success. In their jealousy, perhaps they looked and said, this will diminish Paul's influence. Perhaps they had hated Paul before. Perhaps they were kind of on the side of the Judaizers who were saying you need to teach new Gentile believers to be Jewish. And they were mad at Paul for correcting their false doctrine. And they were rejoicing. And looking at the contention to divide, use it as an opportunity to divide and conquer, to form their own parties and to personally benefit. And stick with me, I'm on, on my last, last uh, point here this morning. But look at our nation and look at the hatred and the division 
And if you look hard enough, you will see people behind the scenes who claim to be against the division and the hatred, but who are doing everything they can to stir it up so that they can benefit personally. And remember in Corinth, in that region, Paul said the church there was split into factions and some people were saying, I am of Paul. He's my favorite preacher. And other people would say, yeah, well, Paul might write all those epistles, but he's not a very good preacher in person. And I like Apollos because he's mighty in spirit to deliver the word. I am a follower and disciple of Apollos. And some said, I'm of Peter. Peter's better than those preachers. And Paul rejected that, even though he could have looked at all of the people who said, I am of Paul, and said, yeah, those are my followers. This is my popularity. This is my influence. He rebuked it. And to those people who perhaps were looking and saying, I want to be a hero like Paul, so I'm going to try to get my own disciples like Paul has his own disciples. Paul rebuked that, and he refused to be a celebrity pastor. There's a church in the Metroplex area where the pastor said, well, we used to believe it really wouldn't be biblical to just, you know, have churches fill up the room and then somebody preaching on the screen. So we were trying to have uh, uh, services. We had eight or ten services a day and it was just too much and too tiring. So we set up seven different church buildings around the Metroplex and the people go in there and just watch me preach on a TV screen. And that's not even the whole point that I'm trying to make, but I'm just... I don't really like that idea because then you could just stay at home and watch it. But the point is that perhaps rather than one church doing that, the church could disciple and train other preachers and send them out so that it's not all dependent on one person. And other preachers, we've seen terrible examples where they take the donations and gifts that come in and they use it to buy a personal jet or pairs of shoes that cost tens of thousands of dollars in mansions and make them own selves wealthy. But Paul said specifically to the people who were saying, I'm a follower of Paul. He rebuked them. And he said, remember, Paul didn't die on a cross for you. I'm glad that I didn't baptize many people while I was there and that I never baptized in my own name. We baptize in the name of Jesus and we're followers of Jesus, not of Paul, not of our favorite preacher. Okay, Lord's telling me, let some things go and see where I'm at here and keep going. They said, see, Paul is wrong. We are right. They were like Job's friends. But let me ask you a question this morning. What is our primary motivation for serving the Lord? For giving the gospel? Is it our name? Is it our reputation? Is it our glory? No, it is not. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true and Jack Kirkpatrick be a liar if I am not in agreement with the Word of God. I am a sinner. I have faults and flaws. But God does not. John Hancock is a famous signer of the Declaration of Independence. And when it came time on July 4th, 1776 to sign that document, they had all their little signatures so they would fit. And then if you look at the picture, John Hancock signed it like this. And everybody said, why did he do that? Was it a look at me? But it was rumored the reason he did it was because the King of England, who was trying to take away their liberties, needed his spectacles and his glasses to read little writing. And he said, tell the King he doesn't need his glasses to read this. 
And he was kind of putting a target on his own back, perhaps to, to take it away from other people. But at one point in the war, when Boston was under siege, John Hancock stood outside of the city and looked at the fires. And he said, burn, Boston, burn. Though it make John Hancock a beggar, burn if the public good requires it. Let me ask you, do we feel that way about our personal treasures? Take them all away for the cause of Jesus Christ. Take what I have if it causes people to get saved. Even about our own name and reputation. Would we be willing to say, let people think that I'm terrible. Let people say false things about me if somehow God chooses to use that for the preaching of the gospel. You see, that's what Paul was saying. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. They thought, this will really burn Paul up in jail. He's going to be mad at this. But they failed. Christianity thrived. God honored Paul. And it actually led to Paul rejoicing even more because the gospel was advanced. But the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. He said, my other brothers out there who are on my side know the truth. They know that I'm set for the defense. The Greek word apologia, which means a plea, an answer of the gospel. Then look at what he said in verse 18. Verse 18 and 19 are, is our last two verses. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. 19, 16, whatever it is, times. Remember, in 104 verses, he says rejoice or rejoicing. And he said, I found a way that people who have a bad motive and people who hate me and who want to see me be all upset about what's going on, when they did stand up to preach, what they preached was the gospel. And more people heard it. So I'm going to rejoice that they're preaching the gospel. The word for pretense means a pretext, deceptive, a cloak or a show or fake in what they were doing. And he said, it's about Christ. It's not about me. Paul said, it's about souls in the gospel, not about me. It's about my love for Christ and what God would do through my service. Albert Barnes says this along the same line of thinking about seeing people who don't like us serve the Lord or people who we might be tempted to be jealous about. When we are laid aside from preaching by sickness, we should rejoice that others are in health and able to make the Savior known, though we are forgotten. When we are unpopular and unsuccessful, we should rejoice that others are more popular and successful. For Christ is preached. When we have rivals who have better plans than we for doing good and whose labors are crowned with success, we should not be envious or jealous. For Christ is preached. When ministers of other denominations preach what we regard as error and their preaching becomes popular and is attended with success, we can find occasion to rejoice for they preach Christ. In the error we should not we cannot rejoice, but in the fact that the great truth is held up that Christ died for people, we can always find abundant occasion for joy. Billy Graham did some crusades where he gave opportunities for people to be with him who didn't preach a pure gospel. I wouldn't do that. He did some things that perhaps I wouldn't agree with. 
But if you can't find reason in your heart to rejoice that Billy Graham preached a simple gospel message to thousands of people at a time, then perhaps there's something wrong. Because I personally know many people who were genuinely saved. Stories of people in my family that had family members that saw Billy Graham preach the gospel and they got saved and believed. There's a lot of people who have popular followings who are reformed or believe what we would call Calvinistic doctrines. And I don't agree with those and I know why. But am I going to be angry and jealous that they have a following? They're wrong, but people are following them. But listen, and if you hear enough of pure gospel coming out of their mouth at any certain time, you should be able to stop and say, thank you, God, that somebody's hearing the gospel. And if different brothers in Christ have differences in, or churches have differences in music style, worship schedule, translations, the way they dress, etc., etc., even if I disagree with it enough that I wouldn't go to that church or start a church with them, if they are preaching that Jesus is God and He's the only way to heaven, I should find a reason to rejoice that Christ is being preached. And if you preach Christ as the only way to heaven and a pure gospel, then I rejoice this morning. I will pray for you and I will be your friend, whether you feel the same way about me or not. By this, Jesus said, shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. As we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Rejoice. Rejoice. He could rejoice that though Paul was being criticized, Jesus was being uplifted. And if Paul could rejoice here over personal enemies, then surely we can rejoice over fellow Christians who are preaching the gospel. Any fellow Christians. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He says, I am confident that through your prayers, God will take my enemies and my trials and use it to bring about my salvation. What was he saying? His salvation from hell? No, he was already saved. His deliverance from jail, from death? Was he 100% sure that he would be set free and not face death? I believe what he is saying is that whatever happens, God's going to use it for good. He's going to deliver me from the intentions of evil men and take their attacks and use it for something good. Paul is saying, it is well. God's in this. He's got this. He's got me. Whatever happens, I am satisfied that the request, so far as I am concerned, will be well. The result will be well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray we could look to the Scriptures this morning and say like Paul did, if you use my trials to advance the Gospel, then so be it. I love you more than I love myself. Use my life to see souls saved and the Gospel go forward. Let's have a very brief moment of prayer, then we'll be dismissed.